Listeners, start your engines. Detours, episode 57. Rob here. On this episode, Brian Scuttle from Sonic Cinema Podcast joins us to discuss the marriage of classical music and animation that are 1940s Fantasia and the deceptively named uh, Fantasia 2000 from 1999. As always, you can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers as well as CrookedTable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating or review wherever you're listening to this. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer for, and then jump into our conversation about Fantasia and Fantasia 2000. It's here. Fantasia. Experience the breathtaking beauty. The wonderful adventure. The very special magic. And the electrifying power. The music come to life. Hear the pictures burst into song. And experience Walt Disney's masterpiece, Fantasia. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, we're doing a standalone. It's been a while with all the Ninja Turtles and the apes. It's been a while since we've done a standalone episode of the show. Uh, In this episode, we're talking about 1940s Fantasia and 1999's Fantasia 2000. And I am honored to welcome back to the show, Brian Scuttle of Sonic Cinema Podcast. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, As always, it is wonderful to talk to you. And I'm looking forward to having this discussion. Yeah, this is, well, first of all, tell people a little bit about Sonic Cinema and what you do over there. I know we, this kind of, I'm getting a similar vibe from this one uh, and the cross-section of film and music as our sort of epic two-part Cloud Atlas conversation. So maybe that's a good segue into what you have going on on your show. It it definitely is. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, Sonic Cinema is something where... Uh, I am a composer as well as a film critic. And so, you know, like when I originally conceived of Sonic Cinema and started that process up of building it up 20 years ago, I intended it to not just be a place to house my thoughts on movies, but also my music and be kind of a hub for my original compositions. And one of the things we'll talk about uh, today is actually kind of interesting, is uh, about 20 years ago, um, some friends of mine and I started to do uh, some fan audio commentaries for 
some movies that we wanted to talk about. It was based on a uh, an idea that uh, the late great Roger Ebert uh, wrote about as the advent of DVDs and audio commentaries really started to come to the forefront of uh, movie culture. And so that that ties in a bit with what we uh, with what we're talking about tonight, and we'll we'll get into that uh, when that when that arrives. But yeah, so I mean, Sonic Cinema Podcast. I mean, basically, it's actually kind of the next evolution of those commentaries, where it's like basically gang friends, filmmakers together talking about movies, and it's not just about promoting upcoming movies. It's diving deep into movies that. Uh, the guests love and the filmmaking process in general. And that's something that really is important to me. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I love uh, talking to people like Robert, where, you know, where uh, you and I have had some great conversations and you, you mentioned our cloud Atlas discussion and uh, it's, it's just really, uh, it, it's great to be able to scratch the itch scratch the itches of uh, this love of movies as well as music. And uh, this is going to be another example today. Yeah. I, I love what you said about, you know, having people talking about movies that they love and seizing that opportunity, because that was a big reason why I had you on for Spider-Man three back on, on this show. Uh, because you, you know, you very vocal about your love for Spider-Man three and, we went on for uh, and uh, I, much longer than I anticipated. We had lots to say about Spider-Man 3, a movie that I think we both agree has been sort of unfairly derided over the years. Uh, and similarly, you, I think, I don't remember how this one came about. I don't know if you said something about Fantasia or I think you said things that you, you know, I think you were trying to manifest things on Twitter. Of like, I'd love to talk about any of these movies or something. And I maybe I jumped in and said, hey, uh, Fantasia has a sequel. Let's let's do it on franchise detours at some point. Something like that. I forget exactly. It was somewhere around there, or it might have been because of the fact that I mean, we'll we'll talk about it a little bit. That yeah, uh, I I had seen Fantasia recently and might have said something about the fact that it's like how much I love the franchise. And I do think it was somewhere around something like that yeah. that did bring this conversation to. Uh, to to uh, fruition, and I did love the idea of doing this little two part discussion on uh, or this this single episode discussion on this franchise. And it's such a unique thing, and I think that's why I jumped on it. Is that franchise detours? The selection of what franchises we cover a lot of times is informed by how wild the swings are, how innovative the the you know, this the direction of the story is, or whatever, and. What's so interesting about this is that this is essentially the opposite of every movie that you see where generally the film is made and then the composer comes in and, and makes music to match the movie. Here, it's like, we have this music. What what visuals do we put to it? And I think that's such a novel concept. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you've ever watched uh, one of my very first uh, DVD purchases when we when my parents, when my mom and I first got into DVDs in uh, 2000 was the Fantasia anthology box set with both of these movies. Nice. And um, if you've ever watched the extras in, uh, in that set, it's really fascinating to see the evolution of 
this idea. And it's funny because of the fact that it initially, I mean, we'll, we'll go more into it, but it did really initially start with Walt Disney continuing to expand the idea of what music could do in animation with, Mm -hmm. in combination with animation. And, uh, you know, the fact that it became a, this humongous film project that is still revolutionary in a lot of ways yeah um is is really quite quite remarkable yeah it it almost makes me kind of pause and be like did this movie like 40 years before mtv did this sort of invent the concept of a music video like you have music now create a video to to sort of match it like on this scale putting that kind of money into it i mean and i know things like like the sorcerer's apprentice had been done in animation before but on this scale and putting this much kind of muscle and clout behind it? Um, I think it was one of the first opportunities. But, I mean, you know, Disney had been exploring with sound. I mean, you yeah. look at Steamboat Willie, the first anime, the first animated short film that had a soundtrack. You you mm-hmm. look at some of the uh, some of the silly symphonies. You talk, look at some of the. Uh, other short films that they did. I mean, they were certainly experimenting with this. And it's funny because of the fact that you mentioned Sorcerer's Apprentice, which of course is widely considered the centerpiece of uh, this, this franchise. And it's one of the definitive Mickey Mouse shorts. This did actually start with that short film where he was, he decided he wanted to do this short film. He, because Sorcerer's Apprentice basically is a, piece of music that essentially tells a really straightforward story and he knew he wanted to collaborate with the conductor Leopold Stokowski and the Philadelphia Orchestra but when he came up what when the product when the process was continuing it was becoming way too cost prohibitive to just do one short Right. It was like you're it was arguably the most expensive short film ever made. <laughs> and so it's like, you know what, why don't we just expand this and make a concert feature? And uh yeah, I mean it's it it basically went from there and it's it's arguably it's arguably the biggest swing that Disney made in his in his entire career and for ver- and for a variety of we- reasons it did not uh land in 1940 uh there are certainly uh, obvious political re- obvious reasons der- throughout the world but there were also kind of um self-inflicted wounds when it came to how they wanted to release fantasia right that resulted in it being a uh, financial failure and um, yeah, it's there's there's so much to talk about with this. <laughs> yeah, no, there is, and and uh, in it was really interesting preparing for this episode, going through like a deep dive of the whole history of this film because there's there's a lot, like you were saying, Sorcerer's Apprentice started as a silly symphony, and then uh, it, it became the concert feature, and the the idea apparently was, and I guess this was Walt's vision, was that this would be re released periodically. <laughs> with new material. So it's just like kind of an ever evolving, uh, you know, draft work in yeah. progress. And I thought that, I think that yeah. that's a really cool idea. Uh, but obviously because <laughs> it didn't land commercially, uh, that, you know, that didn't happen. Um, when was the first time 
you saw Fantasia. What was your introduction to this movie? <coughs> so it's funny because of the fact that the first time I vividly remember watching Fantasia was actually after I had seen Fantasia 2000. Okay. Uh, so in, in 2000, um, I had ran it on VHS because that's what I was watching at the time. And I had already seen Fantasia 2000, absolutely fallen in love with it. And it was, it was quite an experience. Um, you know, and even, even on VHS, the experience just had an impact. And I mean, mm -hmm. part of that is my musical background. I had performed, I had played trombone throughout middle school, throughout high school. And by the end of high school, I realized I wanted to compose music. And so in college, I started to compose music and I'd start and I'd gotten started to work on a have a repertoire of pieces at this point. And um, you know, it was it was one of those things where just the the but and by this point I was also firmly in love with movies, you know, mm -hmm. and uh really starting to dig deep into exploring movies on a deeper level. Um, you know, the the thing that makes this kind of interesting is the fact that I did not have my childhood was not like necessarily very Disney centric. Okay. Like you, you look at the movies that I was watching as a kid. I mean, you know, I, I'm a kid of the late seventies, early eighties. So it's like star Wars, Rivers of lost star Goonies, Ghostbusters, all of that stuff. That's why I was watching my mom didn't really have a particular appreciation for Disney. She was much more of a Looney Tunes person. And so those are the cartoons that I watched. I watched Looney Tunes. Mm -hmm. uh, so when it wasn't until high school, and as I started to watch more and more Disney films and make that regular part of my watching yearn and, year out as I was starting to think about movies, as I was starting to think about top 10 lists for the year and stuff like that, that I started to really start to watch a uh, Disney. And um, so that's, that's, that's why I didn't really get to a lot of the classic Disney when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, yeah, Fantasia was basically lost as part of that. And it wasn't, so I saw Fantasia 2000 that, um, I decided to finally watch it. Had you, were you, had, had you followed the, the, had you seen a lot of the Disney Renaissance stuff before that? The Beauty and the Beast. Um, I started, I started to uh, watch those. I think the first part of the Renaissance, I was, you know, I mean, I, when I was in high school, like, yeah, I was in high school when like Aladdin and Lion King and stuff like that came out. I mean, honestly, the, the, the first, I, I think the first part of that renaissance that I saw on the big screen was Pocahontas, but that was because my mother was a Mel Gibson obsessive at that point. And that's, right. that's a long story for a completely different time. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, you know, the, the thing is, but, you know, it's like on band trips and stuff like that, they would show us Beauty and the Beast. They would show us Little Mermaid, show, so show us the last, but I didn't really pay attention to those. Right. Like I, it was you just know, in the zeitgeist. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, but once I started to really pay attention to films on a regular basis, yeah, I would watch movies in theaters. I would catch up with the earlier ones and the 
Disney Renaissance, as well as some of the classic ones as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think it's the the interesting thing and the, the, the sort of counterpoint of why I was asking that is that this came out, the, the sequel came out in 99, right at the tail end of the Renaissance after Hercules, yeah. Mulan, Tarzan. And this is the third Disney animated feature after Snow White and Pinocchio. And we already said this didn't do particularly well. The second one also didn't do particularly well. What do you, why, what do you attribute that to? Do you think it's just the, the audience in both cases was just more conditioned to, oh, Disney is like a fairy tale musical, not, you know, a concert film. I, I, I think that's part of it. I mean, the, the presentation in both cases is, uh, is a big part of it. Cause I mean, the, the original Fantasia was, designed as a roadshow presentation, yeah. which, you know, would basically go from city to city. So it wasn't in mass release, like something like Gone with the Wind or The Wizard of Oz or, you know, Casablanca afterwards, or even Snow White and Pinocchio. It was considered a roadshow presentation. It was a very limited, you know, it, it's it's very much a limited release and on top of that, they had basically pioneered stereo sound mm-hmm. and surround sound for the original Fantasia. So um, that had to be something that was part of the presentation as well. And I guess in the uh, Fantasia anthology um, or the Fantasia legacy uh, documentary, uh, I guess only 12 theaters total had ever been equipped with fan sound, which was what they called the surround sound process that they use on Fantasia. Mm-hmm. And so you only had 12 theaters that were equipped for it in its optimal presentation. And on top of which you only had 16 prints. So it wasn't something that was in, that was available for wide consumption. On top of which, you're talking about 1940, World War II is already going on in Europe. And I I think if they had had the opportunity to show this in Europe, where with the rich history of classical music and all the the composers um, in the original Fantasia are from Europe and Mm -hmm. Asia and Russia, um, I you I think you will have seen a more engaged word of mouth that might have resonated and might have uh, let it succeed. Fantasia 2000, in a way, is very much the same way because of the fact that, and you know, I I know it says 1999. It only played. It basically premiered <laughs> in 1999. Its official release was January first, 2000. Right. Right. So it's a 2000 <laughs> movie. It's not like Blues Brothers 2000, which came out in 1998. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think they did the and but, they did the opposite. I think with Dracula 2000, that I think came out like December 2000. We're like, eh, is yeah, it yeah, something like Barely. that. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, and so but the thing that was distinct about Fantasia 2000 was it was an IMAX release. Right. It was one of the first mainstream Hollywood movies to release on IMAX, which was a huge deal. I mean, now like every other major blockbuster comes out on IMAX. And, uh, but 
you have to understand that what IMAX was in 2000 mm. is not what IMAX is now. Yeah. Uh, what IMAX was in 2000 was a luxury. It was basically, and a, a lot of it was museums. A lot of it mu- was in museums where they would show nature documentaries and mm-hmm. stuff like that. One of the best experiences I've ever had watching a movie was in 1998 watching, going to the Fernbank uh museum in downtown Atlanta and watching that documentary on the expedition on Mount Everest. Absolutely remarkable experience. It's only 45 minutes, but that experience in the OG type of IMAX experience, which if you've never experienced is basically a, a very steep uh, staircase going up to the, uh, seating, mm-hmm. which basically puts you within line size around the middle of the screen. The screen is basically the size of a large wall, and it's just a massive screen. And that's how IMAX was when Fantasia 2000 came out. Now you see basically what most people associate with IMAX is retrofitted regular auditoriums with larger screens with IMAX sound. It's not the same experience. No, it really, I mean, some people, there are some great uses of IMAX over the years with filmmakers. It's not the same experience at all. No, <laughs> but um, so yeah, that was, that was how I first saw Fantasia 2000 in IMAX and it ran for four months, uh, went out of release. Then it went to regular theaters, mainstream theaters. And then I think it hit IMAX again for a couple weeks. I I think all told, I think I saw it around four. I think I saw it four times in theaters when all was said and done. Nice. But uh, it was it was a tremendous experience. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about with, uh, I didn't see it in IMAX, but I was familiar with, we had a, uh, there was a science museum where I am that had a dome theater that had IMAX and they would play the yeah. nature documentaries and they would play, uh, you know, they, I don't think they would use the whole dome for the blockbuster Hollywood movies, but they would use like half of it basically. So I saw like yeah, the some of the Matrix films, some of the Star Wars films, The Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. I think Star Wars The Force Awakens was like the last one I saw before they started to kind of close that down. Uh, and then yeah. IMAX just became you know what it is now side quick side question when you go to like you know the a big the big movie on you know opening weekend or whatever to whatever the the big theater is would you do you go IMAX or do you go Dolby or do you go 3D uh, what is your preference um we we it's funny uh we we typically uh i would love to do IMAX um yeah. and we have we have a couple pretty good ones in the Atlanta area, but the best one, which is where I saw Fantasia 2000 is a good hour away. Mm, and yeah. so it's, it's hard because of our schedules. It's very hard for my wife and I to get out there. It's been, it's actually been a few years since I've been out there. I think, uh, infinity war was the last movie I saw there, but I mean, I know they they do occasionally press screens in IMAX, uh, downtown, I know uh, we had some uh, last year at the IMAX. Um, 
I I would love to do more IMAX. It just it just really depends on time and right. like you know how much time we have and stuff like that. But uh, no, I mean most of the time it is actually general uh, general general um, general theater watching. I mean honestly, that's 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 good for me. I mean so long as it's yeah. well projected, so long as the lamps been changed and stuff like that, so long as there's no. Uh, Static in the sound. I mean, I'm I'm good. So yeah, I, th- I I feel like because I remember the version of IMAX that you're talking about that I I just like I I, ha- I can't accept current IMAX. I'm like yeah, no, you guys don't understand. This is not what IMAX is supposed to be because I, I tend to lean yeah. more towards Dolby these days for that reason. Uh, but I just think mm-hmm. I have prejudice against current IMAX. Um, so the other thing that I think is really interesting, what we're saying, like. This feels like, would, is it fair to say that Walt Disney himself is sort of the quasi-auteur of Fantasia? Because it does seem like it was yeah. sort of his brainchild. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's very much so a uh, Walt Disney uh, creation. I mean, it was it was his initial idea to do the Sorcerer's Apprentice. wasn't something that a director pitched him. Um, no, I mean, he, he was very much the, uh, brainchild on it and in very much the same way, uh, his nephew, Roy Disney was the brain Fantasia 2000 was the brainchild of Roy Disney. And, uh, he's the one who basically took it over the, uh, finish line because of the fact that, I mean, nobody else was really interested in doing it. And, um, you know, but he wanted to do that continual work in progress like you were saying uh and you know the that's one of the great things about that uh fantasia anthology dvd says it gives you glimpses of either completed segments that they did complete but never released or sketch art of some of the some of some of the choices that they did and it's just absolutely uh it's fascinating to watch and see what they were coming up with do you you think that you know this came out at a time where since walt was in charge i feel like it's a little bit of what sort of happened with apple where they're not as innovative now since post jobs (laughs) that disney then was really known for its innovation for pushing boundaries for developing new technologies and new approaches to storytelling do you think we've lost that nowadays with with disney because i do feel like it's so brand focused uh in the Iger chapic era that is just <laughs> well yeah. well well i mean you know with with uh Iger, i mean that's that's kind of by design i mean i know yeah. uh Iger is i mean he he took over after uh i believe yeah he was he was the one who took over after uh eisner was ousted in the mm-hmm. mid 2000s and um yeah, I mean, for him, a big part of uh, dis- building Disney at that point was brand base. Because I mean, shortly after he, shortly after Iger took over uh, Disney, they completed the merger with Pixar um, that kept them in house uh, permanently. And then a few years later, you had the Marvel deal. A few years after that, you had the Lucasfilm deal. Right. So yeah, I mean, you yeah, I mean, and you know, it you know what, but to answer your question, yes, I do think to a certain extent we're uh, 
the the studio is not as risk averse. I mean, you know, we're we're recording this a couple of days before the uh, latest live action remake of one of their Renaissance films, uh, yeah. The Little Mermaid, is coming out. So, uh, to answer your question, <laughs> yes, they are. It was. Um, I mean, I yeah. kind of knew the answer when I asked it, but it's just yeah. like it's an easy way to sort of uh, transition into that part of the conversation. Oh yeah, absolutely. But no, I mean, I and even but even after um, Fantasia's failure, I mean, Disney really did. It's it's hard to think of too many chances even Disney was take Walt Disney was taking after Fantasia. I mean, he certainly didn't take his biggest swings. Is this? I mean, I think he started to really lean into fancy stories um, that would sell to a larger populace. And you know, I mean, yeah, even even up to the rest of his life, he never took a chance as big as Fantasia again. And I also think it's interesting now, you know, looking at it. Obviously, the movie sort of proclaims itself a new form of entertainment, which I think is a phrase it does live up to uh because it, it is so uh so immersive and so such a, a a brilliant sort of framing the whole framing the whole thing from the beginning is sort of a, a stage production like you're in a live audience i think all of that is really is really uh innovative and, and interesting um but it's also you know i wonder now what the brand recognizability and we'll get into this more with the the second one and then you know kind of what the future of this franchise could be like do people now even know where where that mickey you know mickey's iconic look is from or is that just oh that's mickey mouse with his red robe and his blue hat like i wonder if that yeah. if, it's, if they even have that sort of uh you know, it makes it's one of those things that makes me feel old. Like occasionally you'll see on social media, people like, did you guys know Justin Timberlake was in a boy band or like <laughs> this thing's supposed to have. They, I found this old radio at an antique shop it's supposed to use a cassette tape. And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, and this is like yeah. 70 years, 80 years ago. So it's like that compounded quite a bit, quite a bit. Well, and the funny thing is, I mean, you know, it's it's like this is Sorcerer's Apprentice really is the start of the contemporary idea of what Mickey Mouse is. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you really think about it, it's like, you know, I, I think to a certain extent, you'd be very hard pressed to think about a whole lot of Mickey Mouse stories, three sources apprentice that stand out. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, you know, this is, this is the one that really is, I mean, there there's a reason that look from him in the Sorcerer's Apprentice is as iconic as it is, and um, but yeah, I mean, it's but yeah, I mean, I I think very few people are uh, as familiar with this movie as they are some of the other uh, movies like Dumbo and Bambi and Pinocchio and even Snow White and like any of the princess movies like mm. sleeping beauty jungle book i mean i i don't think they're familiar with fantasia as a whole they're just familiar with that look of mickey yeah and and that on the one hand like watching it because i don't even know if i saw this all the way through as a kid because if you're watching this and i was telling my wife this as i was re-watching these two movies if you're watching this the way you'd watch a the way you traditionally watch a movie you're like all right tell me a story movie it's yeah. you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle. Mm -hmm. Like 
it, it's not that's not the experience that you're in for. So you can't sort of plug in the way that you would if you're like, oh, I'm watching Pinocchio and here he goes. You know, it's 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 dialogue free. It's uh, it's very you know, it's all vignettes. It's more a lot of times as they even say in in the the film itself some of the music tells a story some of it's more like a picture and then some of it is just absolute music and there it's a lot of yeah. just imagery so it's it's like on the one hand i'm like I, I i it's an amazing achievement but it's also like it's not it's 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 a different form of of cinema than i think people yeah. are used to so it's like and on one hand i sort of understand why it doesn't have that sort of mass appeal because what it's doing is so kind of counteracting to the, you know, what you would think a, a, you know, a movie going experience would be. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right in that. And I mean, you know, if, if you, I, I have a feeling this was really, I mean, there are a few different ways you can look at Fantasia. There are two different ways you can look at Fantasia as a, as an experience. One, you can look at it as a, Simac, the Simac equivalent of a concert, musical classical concert, mm -hmm. which obviously was Walt's intention, or you can look at it as an anthology. And I think really this might have been one of the first movie anthologies. And, you know, because I mean, what is an anthology? It's you know, they're, it's telling a variety of stories. And I think one of the things that is so great about, that's great about uh, Fantasia is that it really is not afraid to lean into that idea. And I mean, they, they say it right off the bat, like you yeah. said, there, there are some that tell a definite story. There are some that express different ideas that lead themselves to stories. And then there are some that are music for the sake of music. And, you know, I mean, we will certainly get into the structural differences between the two movies um, because there are, even though they're fundamentally the same type of movie, they are very different movies um, and de very different experiences. But I, I think that is one of the things that makes this film that's one of the reasons, like I, I'm somebody as, as a musician, I went to so many concerts. I went to so many concerts in high school and college. So it's like, I am used to listening to classical music mm -hmm. and I'm used to classical music concerts and the masses in general are not. And I mean, some people may occasionally go to one where, the orchestra is playing Star Wars or a melody of John Williams or, but they're basically going to go to something they're familiar with. Right. And this is not, but they're not necessarily going to go. You're not necessarily going to see that mad dash to see that, to see anybody performing Bach or Stravinsky or, some of the uh, some of the other pieces in the original Fantasia. It's just not going to happen. And it's almost why I feel like this movie works best for either small children or people who are at least old enough to understand that that kind of thing. Like if you put this on for an eight year old, I feel like they're going to maybe they're they're going to kind of have problems focusing or 
or mm-hmm. loses their attention. But if, if I put to put this on for my almost two year old, he'd probably sit there and be like totally sucked in. Cause I, yeah. you know, at a certain point you're conditioned to be like, Oh, this is what a movie is. Especially nowadays where, you know, school age children are all about like minions and things like that. It's all illumination. They don't like, which is the antithesis of this kind of storytelling. Oh. Right. And I, I think to a certain extent, that's part of why you have, I mean, you, you alluded to the, uh, significant difference in the uh running times between the two movies i right. i think to a certain extent that's why it's a big part of why fantasia 2000 is 74 minutes where this one is over 120 minutes yeah so i mean because one of the things that you really realize when um when when you watch Fantasia, and if you're familiar with the the way classical music is uh, structured, like they're literally pa- playing entire pieces yeah. here. I mean, not obviously the entire thing of Rave Spring, but they're basically playing a significant portion of Rave Spring. Mm-hmm. They're playing basically the entire Pastoral Symphony, and so I mean, those two segments alone take up like. 40 minutes of screen time. Yeah. And so once you have the interstitials and then once you have the one, once you have other segments, which all run around nine to 15 minutes, I mean, that's, that's going to add up. Yeah, so. absolutely. Is uh, one thing, first of all, this movie eight, over 80 years old at this point, and it's remarkable how timeless it feels in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think, Especially, you know, a lot of you were mentioning how, you know, earlier how Mickey Mouse, there's not a lot of Mickey Mouse stories that we still remember from this time. This is also in this like around the era where a lot of those cartoons, Disney and Warner Brothers, we just don't talk about because they're uh, problematic in some way. Isn't this like 30s, 40s? I feel like we're in that era. And I feel like that might be part of it. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that's, that's certainly part of it. I mean, look, there's, there's even stuff in uh, the nut, the way they yeah. reimagine the nutcracker here. Yeah. That yeah. is like, eh, it's kind of cringeworthy. It, the way it they, had a disclaimer mean, when I watched it on Disney plus yeah. and I was looking for the, the discrepancies <laughs> and I was like, Oh, okay. The mushrooms that are dancing, the, mushrooms, the lady the, centaurs, which I guess, yeah. you know, they're naked, but you know, nippleless. So I guess yeah. that's the compromise. <laughs> well, and 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 the funny thing is, it's like when when I uh, my my wife and I actually went to go see uh, the original Fantasia on uh, the big screen at the Plaza in Atlanta last year. Uh, they showed it, and I'm like, I absolutely have to go to this. Uh, one of the thing I hadn't seen it in a couple of years, and one of the things that I forgot is just how unabashedly horny the pastoral <laughs> sequences um it's like there's a lot of innuendo going on there yeah, yeah and yeah. uh but yeah i mean you you mentioned the centaurs you mentioned the centaurettes but i mean it, it's funny because of the fact that there there are scenes that aren't even included anymore they got cut out years ago uh regarding some black centaurs right that just were not appropriate and uh, just turn people off. I mean, we haven't seen those for years. But yeah, right. you mentioned the mushrooms yeah. and the Nutcracker. Even even the thistles dancing like Russian Cossacks uh-huh. at the end of the the Nutcracker. Which granted, it's a Russian 
composition. I mean, Tchaikovsky's right. a Russian composer, but still, it's like uh, it's kind of, kind of cringeworthy. And <laughs> but for an eighty-something-year-old movie, like ninety-five percent of it, like holds up really well visually. Yeah. and and even you know even any of that, like uh, I. It sounds like of the original version, there were the <laughs> the black centaurettes, uh, I think, that were like sort of tending to the white ones, like you said. And yeah. then I guess in Ireland, like in the 40s, they cut out the whole science tells us this is what happened and how the world began yeah. kind of thing, which <laughs> even now, you know, I was like, wow, look at look at Disney going pro science with things. Yeah. Like, I, I thought that was really bold, especially for 1940. Uh, so it, it's impressive. Well, yeah, I mean, especially it's. it's yeah, I mean, especially since, uh, you know, this was 15 years after, about 15 years after, I believe, the uh, Scopes trial regarding mm -hmm. evolution versus creationism. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that, and I mean, you know, it's funny because even now this is, you know, that we've circled back to that discussion. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where I'm, it's it's fascinating to see the challenges that they took, and I I think you know we we talked about like the the nudity such as it is in the pastoral, but there's also some really dark imagery here, yeah. like in the Rite of Spring where the dinosaurs are fighting. That's as scary as anything in any of the Jurassic Park movies. Chernobog is is scary now. I'm 39 years old and, as of this recording, and I'm like, damn, this is kind of dark. I forgot how. Like how bad oh, yeah. night this guy on, is. Night, night on Bald Mountain is as terrifying a sequence yeah. of as anybody has put on film. It really is. And it is it's it's the closest to a genuine horror movie I think Disney's ever gotten as putting mm -hmm. on screen. Yeah. And I would think I think that's probably because of the impact that that sequence made. That's probably why, other than the sorcerer's apprentice and Mickey in the in the blue hat with the red robe. Chernobog is probably the other big piece of iconography that's that's endured the most from this film. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have I have Funko Pops of both of those. I mean, nice. I, I really do. So I I found them at Dragon Con a couple of years ago. So um yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. And uh, you know, I I I don't know if they're on I don't know if they're on Disney Plus. They should be on Disney Plus, all the making of stuff for Fantasia. But if you if you can find those, I cannot recommend them enough because of the fact that it's fascinating to see the different one of the things I love about Fantasia and really both of the Fantasia movies that is so great and so rich is the fact that even though it's essentially the same studio, you really do get a sense of all of these are very different stylistically. Yeah, I mean, you do have some common stylistic things happening in Sorcerer's Apprentice and Dance of the Hours, but Rite of Spring is something that is really trying to be as realistic as possible to live action in a very distinct way, even going beyond what we had seen with Gertie the Dinosaur in terms of stop motion animation. Uh, you look at the very expressive ideas of what they do in the Takata and Fugue. Uh, Pastoral Symphony is very playful. Um, Night on Bald Mountain is as terrifying as anything has come up with. Anybody has come up with. And then 
even the soundtrack in the original Fantasia, I mean, you know, that is a unique way of, like, nobody really knew what a, uh, nobody really knew what sound looks like. Yeah. You know, unless you were listening to somebody, unless you were, unless a physicist was, like, listening, was having them uh, do a recording on an oscilloscope. And that's when you would find out. But if you look at that soundtrack, meet the soundtrack sequence, mm-hmm. and you, I'm, you know, it's like you, I'm sure you've got audio editing software. I've got <laughs> audio editing software. Totally what it's I thought not about. Dis- it's not dissimilar. Yeah. It really is not dissimilar to what sound actually looks like. And it's really fascinating to see the way that they visualize that so well. Yeah. Yeah, that, no, that's a completely, exactly what I was thinking about. I was like, oh, all of us podcasters know those know know the sound waves very well. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it's something that people post every other day on uh, every other week on Facebook. It's like, gee, uh, you know, podcasters can basically understand what um sounds yeah. what um looks like yeah, as yeah. as a waveform, and um, you know, but that's that's one of the things that's so exciting about Fantasia is the fact that it's like, in addition to the way they were revolutionizing sound, which really would not pick up again until the late seventies, early eighties, when digital effects and digital sound would really start coming into its own. I mean, they were doing this in the forties. Yeah. And it's as revolutionary. And the thing is, it's like, you don't need a 5.1 system in your house to hear it. Like even on a really strong stereo track, you can hear those differences. You you can hear the different areas that the sound is coming out of. And it's it's fantastic. Do you do you have a um do you have a favorite segment of the eight from this <sighs> film before we start before we move into the other one? I I think I think Rave Spring is probably my favorite one. I I love the I mean I was like like a lot of young boys, I was a freak over dinosaurs. And I mean, you know, one of the things that was happening when I was growing up when I was about nine or ten is, you know, they started having dinosaur bones come into museums. And yeah. so you would get to see the dinosaur bones for the first time. You know, you would hear, you would get to see what these dinosaurs would actually look like. And so, yeah, I mean, Rise Spring is just tremendous. I do love uh, Night on Bald Mountain and Ave Maria. Um, I do wish the pastoral sequence was a bit shorter. And, you you know, by, and I, by really like the expressionism of Takata and Fugue. And, I, I'm, you know, how could you not be a fan of Sorcerer's Apprentice? It's right. really just such a, such a fun sequence. It's such a great showcase for Mickey Mouse. But yeah, I mean, I, I think Rave Spring is probably my favorite. Yeah, there's. What there's, about you? I think for me, it's probably Night on Bald Mountain, just because that it's like it's so stunning. Like the yeah, the anime and the animation in all these segments looks amazing, but that one is just feels next level uh yeah in some way it just like with the the i don't know i don't know that just the the imagery going on there like you said like there was actually in this moment i'll mention this 
kind of thing more later. But like there was apparently some talks in at Disney to do some kind of movie based on Night on Bald, Bald Mountain. And I would be really interested to see if, how that would even work. Or if they would, it would probably pale in comparison to the visuals in the sequence. And I think that's yeah. maybe why they decided like, mm, I don't know if we could top that. I, I, you know, it's like if, if you were to be able to get somebody like Del Toro to do that, yeah, I think it would be amazing. But I mean, unless you're getting somebody on his level, I, I don't know how you even come close to what the animators were able to do. If I were if I were Disney, I would I would uh, make Del Toro an offer to do Night on Bald Mountain stop motion, and then there you yeah. go. Especially coming off. Of oh Pinocchio. my god, that would be that would be that would be remarkable. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So. <laughs> Speaking of Sorcerer's Apprentice, since you since you brought that uh, up there again, obviously the one holdover for Fantasia 2000. So they had wanted to get a sequel in the work since like the eighties, they had the musicana. It was going to be more kind of jazz inspired. Yeah. And uh, that ended up being shelved for Mickey's Christmas Carol, which I did watch a lot as a kid, uh, incidentally. And then I guess in the early nineties, when, when Fantasia came on, on video and did so well, Michael Eisner was like, Oh, maybe there's, maybe there's, you know, there's some profit to be made there. It's, and it's funny that this came out. Fantasia 2000 came out in that era, like 94 to like, I don't know, 03, where you got Return of Jafar, Jungle Book 2, Lion King, all the Disney, every Disney sequel, and like maybe a handful actually yeah. made it to theaters. Uh, so it's it's just mm. it's just funny that that got kind of <clears throat> enveloped in that. So how do you think, obviously we know how much you love the first film, how do you think the second one stacks up and uh, and, you know, the changes that they made along the way? I think if you're looking at it solely from the... Uh, fact of the animation i think it holds up just as well i i think the experience is definitely i don't want to say watered down i i think it I, I think it's 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 more geared towards contemporary audiences what yeah. contemporary audiences will sit through it's not as serious as having music historian and critic deems taylor tell you about music and all that stuff i mean there's steve the, martin the come out and crack a joke. very much fun and the thing, but the thing is, I I think in the context of Vantage yeah. two thousand, I think that works. Yeah, and I I think it really works. And um, yeah, but no, I mean there there are sequences in this one that are every bit is the equal of the best sequences in Fantasia. I think. What which ones? Uh, which one specifically do you think stacks up to the, the um, I think Pines of Rome. Uh, which is it's it's a tremendous piece of music, and I I love the story they tell of the whales flying. Mm -hmm. I I think the animation is just absolutely beautiful. I think the way they the way they work the story into the big orchestral moments, as well as the moments where it's just the piano is just absolutely beautiful, and it really they they managed to tell an emotional story with a very fantastical idea. And then of course the Rhapsody in blue yeah, with by uh, the tour of force by uh, Eric Goldberg and uh, inspired by the great um, caricaturist Al Hirschfeld. And that is, that's as, that's as good a piece of animation as Disney's ever put out. And I, I, 
you know, and I, I love the Firebird Suite, which was a piece of music that they did option from Stravinsky when they were coming up with Fantasia. And uh, in addition to Rave Spring, they also, you know, talked to him about doing Firebird Suite. Uh, you know, he was not happy with Rites of Spring. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, Firebird Suite, I think, is a beautiful sequence. I, I think it's undercut slightly because of the fact that it came out in America so close to Princess Monoke. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's one of those things where uh, it's it's essentially got the same type of ending. You know, the idea of life, death, and renewal in nature that is uh, prevalent. Although, again, if you look at the uh, documentaries on the Fantasia anthology, you, you, you see where the filmmakers were inspired by uh, Mount St. Helens blowing up. And, uh, you know, when in their initial ideas for where to go with the Firebird. But, I mean, honestly, there's there's a lot of I, I do love all of these in their own way. Um, but I mean, those Pines in Rome, Pines of Rome, and I think Rhapsody in Blue are the two that very much stand out as the best in this bunch. In addition to obviously Sorcerer's Apprentice, which well, yeah. was the one they held over. Yeah, yeah, so. exactly. Uh, I, I, I think I tend to agree, uh, particularly in Rhapsody in Blue. I think Pines of Rome is also it. It felt very much like a film that came out the same year as Dinosaur, the Disney film. Like yeah. it's the, the early kind of early CG of that era. I think is it's it's you know I think you can. There's a certain roughness to it now, but it's it's since it's blended with traditional animation, I think it's it feels very uh you know it has a very sp- particular aesthetic, and I know there's CG yeah. kind of running throughout this as well, uh and that's that's one of the many things that like you were saying that you could feel how that concept it doesn't you're right I mean it doesn't feel as pure it, you're right because it yeah it doesn't feel that it didn't have the same sort of visionary approach to it i think it you know roy disney roy e disney i think obviously shepherded this thing but it's you can also feel eisner being like yeah but it's got to stay under 80 minutes and here put some famous people in there and make sure donald duck is in a sequence you know and as much as it's fun to see donald duck there it's also like it just feels like you were saying like they were they were how do we keep kids engaged (laughs) oh oh, look there's donald duck and daisy Running around Noah's Ark. That's how you that's how you do it in their minds, I guess. Well, I, I will say I do enjoy pomp and circumstance. Yeah. I, I love that is I, I think that's as entertaining a vehicle for Donald Duck as Sorcerer's Apprentices for uh Mickey. Mm-hmm. Um I you know, in we we didn't we haven't talked about Steadfast and Soldier and the Shostakovich piano concerto, which is right. a beautiful combination. But you know, you were you were talking about Pines of Rome coming out the same year as Dinosaur. I mean, you know, I mean, you you look at the animation for the Shostakovich and Steadfast Tin Soldier. I mean, that pales in comparison to Pixar, you know, mm-hmm. and Toy Story. Yeah. But the thing is, I I think if you if you remove it from the expectations of what other filmmakers have given you, right. I I love the expressionist nature of 
the steadfast tin soldier. I think it's a really entertaining use of color. I think it's a really entertaining use of humor, of scares, of suspense, of, you know, it tells, it has a really strong story in terms of the Hans Christian Andersen story. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way that they use the uh, piano concerto number two is just, is perfect there. You know, pop and circumstance. I, I, I enjoy that. And, you know, I love the fact that it's like, well, you know, this this piece of music that we obviously all know from graduations. Well, what's another big moment in people's lives? It's like, well, you could go with Noah's Ark. And then you, you have this comedic, like, sleepingless, sleepless in Seattle-type romantic comedy going on with Donald and Daisy, where they keep missing each other and stuff like that. It's a very yeah. funny premise. And, you know, it's worth it to have the that moment where it's like Donald's trying to get two by two and everything on and you see the two ducks going in. It's like, wait a minute, what, what, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, I, and you know, and then Eric Goldberg has a second one for, uh, Carnival of the Animals where it's basically flamingos playing with a yo-yo. Right. And that's very colorful, very, you know, comedic and, it's basically their answer to Dance of the Hours in a lot of ways. Or, no, yeah, Dance of the Hours in a lot of ways. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think if you if you try, if you take the, and I mean, we've, we haven't talked about the piece that opens this, which is three minutes of Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, that's one of those things where it's like, how do you feel about three minutes of Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5? It's like, you know, and then they say, well, you get the right three minutes and you're you're cooking. But I, I like how that is it's a different type of expressionist, uh very music for music's sake, but telling a very interesting telling a very simple expressionist story. And um I I think you you know, I think if you look at it as two different version, two different types, two different ways of visualizing the same concept, mm-hmm. I think Fantasia 2000 does hold up. Yeah, it's more contemporary. Yes, it's sillier. Yes, it's more you know geared towards audiences now. It's not as highbrow, but that's fine. And that's what I love about about this and you know it's like we i was talking about fan commentaries i did i did actually do a fan commentary that you can hear on sonic cinema and sync up with the movie to fantasia 2000 and you can like i said you can go to sonic cinema go to under commentaries and you'll find under the solo commentaries you know it's it's one of those things where it's like it is a different experience but it's the same type of experience and i i love that somebody decide that the world needed more of this type of experience of combining classical music with animation. Yeah. 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 I didn't mean that as a knock about, uh, about, Oh no, I uh, I get it. I hope it didn't come across that way. It just, it's, yeah, it's that, it's that kind of early, you know, it feels like of its, of its time in that way, in the way that Fantasia does, you know, some of the animation does there as well. And that's just in a way that, in a way that's an asset because you can look at it as like it's a time capsule of where animation was and all that other stuff. Um, it's it's also must have been frustrating for on Disney's end that 
they do that finally, you know, almost 60 years later, they take that chance. They do another Fantasia. They, they spent 80 to 85 million on this, which I'm like, that's, that's a chance Disney. Well, well done for throwing it out there. And it still doesn't, even with everything, it still doesn't perform to what they yeah. want. It made like 90 worldwide, uh, which is not great, obviously, on an $85 million budget. And with all those things that we mentioned, the shorter runtime, the celebrity intros, uh, Donald Duck being included and, you know, maybe a little more, you know, aimed more for more contemporary audience. What do you think? What do you think went wrong at that time as far as getting audience appreciation? Because, I mean, I agree with you. I think there is stuff in here that that works better than others. But like overall, like I appreciate the effort at trying to recreate that experience for, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I think it was I I think in a way it was the same same situation of yeah. the original Fantasia where the release was so limited because the biggest part of this movie's release was that four month window on IMAX yeah. and mainstream audiences were not a there weren't a whole lot of IMAXs that could really hold Fantasia two thousand at the time so it wasn't opening on three thousand screens. And then also audiences were not conditioned yet to, to realize that mainstream films were available on IMAX. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think if you do the same thing now, I think it's a very different story. I think you would get more people. I mean, I, I think it, I think it's the release and I, you know, because I know the the regular theatrical release was not as long as I don't think it was as long as the uh, IMAX release. But I mean, even then, it was it was into the summer and people were watching those movies. So I mean, you had yeah. you had X Men, you had uh, Scary Movie, you had Perfect Storm, you had The Patriot, you had Gladiator, Mission Impossible Two, you had the Dinosaur Movie. Uh, you had Chicken Run. I mean, you you had a lot of different, you lo- had a lot of different variety there, and you know it's like that's that's different from having, uh, you know, from having exclusivity in a certain amount of screens. So, right. so Fantasia two thousand came out didn't didn't do particularly well. Again, unfortunately, the cr- creatively you know, successful. I think most people also generally well regard, uh, regard yeah. the, the sequel pretty well. They were tr- apparently tried to do Fantasia 2006, a few years later. And uh, that's where things like the little match girl, which you can see on <clears throat> Disney plus and some of the, some other shorts were initially sort of earmarked for that. Uh, I was going to ask you if you, if you think there's an audience for Fantasia now, because like I like we said, you know the they were gonna do the night on bald bald, bald mountain. So I don't know why that's hard to say. The night on bald mountain uh, film that didn't happen. They did this obviously the live action Sorcerer's Apprentice with Nick Cage. Yeah. There's been you know concerts and video games and all kinds of other ancillary ancillary material. Uh, apparently, they said in 2019 that they were developing something Fantasia for Disney Plus. I don't. Of course, we haven't heard anything that I yeah. can find in the last few years. So whether that's happening or not, why do you think they should proceed forward with this, uh, you know, franchise that became a franchise like 60 years after the first film? I mean, you know, it's like one of my, one of my big wishes for would be more uh, Fantasia or more people 
taking on the mantle of what Fantasia was. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I, I think this would be a great anthology series for Disney Plus. You know, it's like you get and as a as a way of nurturing talent, as a way of nurturing animation talent and give people ideas of like, hey, is there a particular music piece of music you listen to that you know you you have an interest in animating and so like you know you don't necessarily i don't the thing is i don't think you necessarily have to make a huge event of it you know to where you make an entirely new feature right but yeah i mean it could be like you release a new thing you release a couple of uh new segments every week or so for like eight to 10 weeks or something like that. And giving people the opportunity to stretch their wings. It's like that, you know, I mean, I, I haven't seen the new season yet, but that's one of the things that was so interesting about um, star Wars visions, mm-hmm. um, which is basically animators telling stories within the world of star Wars within using their own animated styles now lava is drawn on anime but this season they have Ardman doing doing a segment and um you know i mean that but i mean that goes back to the animatrix to go back to your favorite movie in the wakowskis i mean that's one of the things they did before the sequel came out in 2003 you had the animatrix and they where they were exploring new ideas and that and using laying animators from all around the world tell different stories within the world of the matrix in their own ways. And I, I love that idea. And I, I, I really, I've always wanted them to continue Fantasia. Not, I mean, that might be just because of the fact that it's like, I, as, as a composer, I would love to see them take on contemporary composers Mm. Uh, and different ideas of what, you know, even, even if it's not necessarily exclusively classical composers, even if it's somebody like Brian Eno, uh, some of his, uh, more electronic music or Edgar Varese, or, you know, just, just a wide variety of composers and just basically showing people that, Animation is still a place for tremendous creativity, but I mean the sad thing is, it's like you you look at the uh, you you look at the landscape of animation, and I mean it does unfortunately seem like the the studios and even Disney are not uh, or Disney especially is not necessarily valuing animation as much as they used to, and that's a shame. Yeah. Yeah, when you hear most of their uh, output, it's all sequels and it's just building on again brand focus. But isn't yeah. a lot of the a lot of the classical music even isn't that a lot of it in the public domain at this point too? So like, oh yeah, and I mean, you know, and the thing is, oh yeah, I mean, especially right, especially so. the classics. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you've so got four, you've got four savings. centuries, you've got four to six centuries of classical music that's own the public domain you yeah. just have to record it um yeah, exactly. you know and i mean yeah that can be expensive but look disney disney has their own classical music hall <laughs> in hollywood 
Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's great to use that for concerts, but I've got to think you could use it to do tremendous recordings of, um, of classical pieces. And it's funny because of the fact that, uh, in Fantasia 2000, they had James Levine conduct the Chicago symphony orchestra and the place that they recorded that, uh, in Chicago was actually, I, I've actually performed there as part Mm -hmm. of the, my high school concert band. We went to the, uh, band of America national concert band festival and we performed, uh, some pieces in uh, Medina Hall in Chicago, which is where they recorded the music for Fantasia 2000. And it's it's a tremendous place for recording. It's it's not as great a place for a live performance, but if you're recording, it's a great place. I mean, it's it's one of those things where I think there's tremendous places that you. I think there's tremendous things you can do with this concept. I I think it's just a matter. And look, it's a built-in franchise. You've yeah. got the name already, Fantasia. You can, you know, it doesn't have to be another feature film. It just has to be like offering up new artists the chance to create new segments based on classical music that they love. And they're Disney. They have the resources. They have the, the yeah. they have. So this the, the thing is they they get, you know, they record the music they get they commission animators to do the kind of like you know the Pixar did the Spark shorts on Disney Plus and all that stuff. You get somebody that you have on on contract. You get like Kihui Kwan or somebody to record intros to each segment. You release release them weekly or whatever, and then at the end you give subscribers the option to play them all together as a feature. And there you go. You slap credits on it and you're done. That would be phenomenal. Like, <laughs> that would be a, phenomenal. Give it a limited release yes. in like theaters or something, and you're good to go. Fantasia 2024 or five, whatever. Or you know what? Go back to what you were doing and putting short films in front of the feature. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the great things. That was one of the great things coolest things about Pixar at the beginning of Pixar. I mean, I think they still do it. I don't know, but yeah, you know, so. they were, yeah. they, they would have a new Pixar short or have an existing Pixar short on their features. And I mean, why, you know, and it's like, if this is part of Fantasia, it's like, Ooh, Fantasia, that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. And, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, you've got this great idea built in concept, do something with it. And it's like, why are you not doing something with it? Well, that's how I felt about the Muppets for the longest time. And now we finally have a a TV series that I feel like does justice to who those characters are supposed to be in that, that brand. So, you know, we're, I still need to watch that. I I still need to watch that. They'll get around (laughs) to it. I guess is what we're hoping. But I was going to ask you, because I normally ask at the end of the episode, what is the legacy of this franchise? But I think we already said it. It's that marriage of visuals, of music, of, of you know, appreciating the classics, uh, specifically with these movies, the classical music of those eras. And I think, yeah, I think that's something that there is a market for. Yeah. I feel like with the short film thing, I feel like they put that frozen fever or whatever one of those frozen ones in front of coco and they scared everybody they scared themselves off of it but the difference is that was like 25 20 minutes (laughs) yeah it was 20 minutes long that'd be like putting the symphony segment of fantasia (laughs) in front of like moana right it's like what are you doing 
<laughs> yeah, like 10 minutes and 25 minutes or whatever. Big difference. Um, yeah, yeah, huge difference. Oh, my God. I'm um, so glad I waited to watch Coco before. I I think until I think I waited until <laughs> they'd release they'd ax that short. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Before I, I, I saw see Coco. It. Yeah, but, I, I, I yeah that was it was rough. So hopefully they can God, get back I, to that because I do miss that as well. God, I remember so much. I because we had Coco at my theater at the time, and it's like so many people would come out. It's like I think you're playing the wrong movie. It's like no, trust me, it's it's the right movie. It's just a very long short, Ugh, and it's goodness. like then when they finally told us, it's like okay, you can remove the short. It's like thank God. <laughs> oh my God. But yeah, Ugh. there's, you know, there's, I mean, you, you wouldn't have to do much to promote new Fantasia, but yeah, you mentioned music videos earlier and it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of in the same way of music videos, sort of in the same way that Pink Floyd, the wall is, um, you know, it's, but I mean, really there are few, you know, there aren't a whole lot of artists. I think that if really, taken to the idea of Fantasia in creating just huge epic short film right. music videos. Yeah. Um, you know, the main ones I'm thinking about are like the extravagant Guns N' Roses ones for like Don't Cry in November Rain and stuff like that, which were like just insane stories through this entire through through those uh music videos. But no, I mean, there's not much you would have to do. And yeah, I mean, the legacy, you know, I mean, there was a reason that animators were wanting to do Fantasia again. It's because of the fact that it inspired them to do animation. I mean, even if Fantasia 2000 doesn't quite inspire the same type of inspiration that Fantasia does, and I don't know that it does, at least it shows that there's potential there for a variety of stories. Yeah. I, 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 I do think, yeah, that's definitely, it's, it's really had a, a long tail. I, I don't, I don't know if it's been, would you say that, what, what do you think the influence Fantasia has had on cinema? Like, like you were saying, there's not a lot, it's not something they came out and then uh, there were a bunch of, you know, Fantasia ripoffs happening or anything like that. Has it steered animation cinematically in one direction or another, in your opinion? I I think it's definitely uh, I think it's definitely inspired uh, animators to get bolder in uh, their approaches to the uh, art of animation. Yeah, you know, and I mean, you know, like 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 we were saying, it's like there's there's generations of animators who were inspired by Fantasia. And I mean, even if they aren't necessarily doing the same thing that Fantasia did in terms of telling short story, telling stories with classical music, um, I, I think you you can see in the way that the uh, ways that the art form has changed is in the ways that people have been inspired by uh, the way Disney approached the art form, whether it's the multiplane camera, whether it's whether it's the designs, I mean, there were there were so many big, there were so many different names beyond the usual staples at Disney who were responsible for the 1940 uh, Fantasia. You know, there were creature, there were concept artists who um, may not have directed the 
segments, but they certainly influence the style. And then you you look at anime, you look at uh, current CG animation. I mean, you know, there there's you can see in what Blue Sky was up until uh, the time Disney closed after the Fox acquisition. You know, you can see what DreamWorks does. You can see what independent animators have done in multiple countries around the world. Mm-hmm. I, I think the, the influence of Fantasia and the artists of Disney is everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, even if they're, even if it's not filmmakers doing short films, and I think that's, that's, you know, and, and the thing is, it's like, I'm so glad that the internet exists for, and we have all of these places that are devoted to animated short films. Mm-hmm. Short films are, whether it's live action or animated or documentary, they are a place for great experimentation. And you can watch some tremendous ones on any number of streaming platforms. And I mean, I would, you know, and, and I'm sure you're going to find some that are very much influenced by what Disney's was doing in these films. No, I think so too. I also feel like part of maybe Fantasia 2000, maybe Disney's confidence there was that that was right around the time they had, uh, they were starting the, the Pixar stuff. So Toy Story had uh, one of their shorts in front of it, Toy Story 2 <laughs> and Bugs Life had Jerry's Game. Are you, yeah. nearly wordless short film of an old man playing game of chess with himself. Uh, so I, I feel like that was sort of, you know, kind of already Disney was already sort of dipping into that a bit through the Pixar side of things. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think their legacy has gone on. There's a lot of really great, you know, I mentioned the little match girl earlier. There's a lot of really great animated shorts just on Disney and Pixar's end of things. Not even yeah. when you look beyond those. And I think, you know, it's just up to Disney to find a market and to and for the audience to find the material for animated short films in that studio and elsewhere. Like you're saying, uh, I think it's it's it, the hardest thing is for those. Those are not projects, particularly the non-studio ones. Those are not projects that are often on you know the banner of uh, of whatever streaming service they happen to be on. You know, you have to go digging no, around no. for it, and I think yeah. that's that's part of the disconnect. It's not necessarily that people don't appreciate that art form. It's just, they're like, they have to do some homework in order to track it down. No, exactly. Um, You know, and, and the thing is, it's like, if you are a film critic or if you're just a film lover who goes to film festivals, who watches film festivals, take in If they have an animated short film block, take it, take it in because I'll, I'll tell you, they're some of my favorite short films in film festivals are animated. Mm. And it seems like Eve, every year you're seeing one or two or many more. They're just absolutely unbelievable who are taking the ideas of what Disney and Pixar are cultivating and fostering. And they're doing something unique with those ideas. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's a reason there's an animated, there was an animated short Oscar before there was an animated feature Oscar. That's true. I mean, yeah. it, it you before. know, and 
way before. And I mean, there's a reason for that. It's because of the fact that this art form has existed for decades and even before Disney, before Fantasia. And so I, you know, I mean, I am not a huge animation guy. I, I don't live or breathe animation. I never intended, I never wanted to be an animator, but I love, especially because of these films, I love the art form of animation. I respect the craft that comes with animation because it is a, is as much a process of discovery as composing music. Yeah. And I, I think that is one of the things that is absolutely remarkable about animation. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad uh, I, I do want to thank you, Robert, for giving me the opportunity to share my love about this with these movies. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Like I, like I said, this is, a very unique franchise and uh, it, unlike anything else that really we've seen in cinema because of the, the role that music plays in it, because of, that it is an anthology of short animated uh, films, uh, by the way, short subjects, cartoons was an Oscar category in 1932. So well, there you go. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's there you go. Name changes a couple of times, but yeah, that's that. It's uh, yeah. there's a there's a long history there, and uh, you know I hopefully this episode will maybe get some people who haven't seen these movies in a while or at all to check them out. And yeah, I think the biggest thing we can say to listeners is just like like what you said, animated animation. There's a lot of it out there that you haven't seen. There's a lot of animated shorts. Start with Fantasia. Start with Disney and Pixar if you want. Whatever. Look at what's been nominated for Oscars as a starting point. There's lots of good stuff out there. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of it really began with Fantasia. It steered a lot of that, uh, a lot of that, as you said, it's been inspiring generations of animators and so with good reason. So I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to say thank you to you for coming on and to to talk about these movies with me. And it's 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 also, you know, getting your perspective as a composer and hearing wh- how how much these movies mean to you, I think, is really valuable uh, for people who have an interest in animation or in music. So, uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, tell people where they can find you and Sonic Cinema on social media. Uh, you can find me <laughs> on uh, www.sonic-cinema.com is the website. Uh, film reviews, blogs, film festival uh, coverage. Uh, the podcast is available on Sonic Cinema as well. Uh as well as places like Good Pods, Apple, Google, Spotify, um, anywhere uh, podcasts are available. Robert's been on a couple times, and I've loved talking to him about uh, parody films as well as our massive two-episode two discussion on Cloud Atlas uh, last year. And then um, on Twitter, I am at S-K-U-T-L-E-L-E-M-U-R, Scuttle Lemur. Uh, there is a story there. Uh, I think I told it somewhere on social media. Uh, you can subscribe to the Sonic Cinema Movie uh, podcast uh, YouTube channel. Uh, you can subscribe to my composers channel, which is just my name, Brian Scuttle dash composer. Uh, that is on YouTube as well. Uh, you can find my music on Bandcamp, on CD Baby, basically wherever you stream uh, music music you can listen to it 
Uh, I'm also at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. I've got a couple of um, series going on for uh, $1 a month uh, subscribers. I've got leaving the collection where I go through my a, a, uh, a DVD that I've had in my uh, collection. And I'm, I don't really have much value for it in my collection at this point in my life. And either because I just haven't seen it in a while or it just, you know, doesn't mean as much to me as it did. And so I've got that. I also have Life Soundtrack where I look at albums I've got in my collection, whether soundtracks or uh, music out regular uh, genre albums. And I talk about why these are in my collection. I've had some interesting uh, inclusions there. I've had some interesting inclusions on uh, leaving the collection and I'll have a lot more coming up. Awesome. Sounds good, Brian. Uh, people on this feed will be hearing more of you very soon. Uh, <laughs> to do scheduling craziness on my end, we're getting back to back, Brian. So uh, next episode, you and I will be talking about X-Men, the 2000 film, which will be kicking off that mega series. But I, I was really, it was really a blast to have you here for this standalone one. And uh, I love it when a plan comes together and, uh, you know, the, yeah. we were able to make this happen. So thanks again, my friend. Same. Thank you. Big thanks to Brian Scuttle from Sonic Cinema Podcast for coming on to discuss 1940s Fantasia and 1999's Fantasia 2000. This was a this is an episode we had kind of in the works for a while and think meant to happen earlier this year and scheduling conflicts on my end, admittedly, kind of got in the way. So I'm glad we were finally able to make it happen. But I want to know, have you seen Fantasia or Fantasia 2000? What are your thoughts? I feel like, as I said in the episode, this is a, a franchise, so to speak, that has kind of a, a higher barrier to entry than some other Disney properties uh, because of the lack of a, a straightforward narrative throughout uh, and the the reliance on visual storytelling almost exclusively. Let me know. I want to know your thoughts. Find me on Twitter at Crooked Table. Same handle on Instagram where I've actually been posting more. I've been more active on Instagram than Twitter these days uh, for obvious reasons. And via email at robert at crookedtable.com. We'll be back next episode again with Brian Scuttle to kick off our X-Men mega series. We'll be doing all 10 movies uh, minus the Deadpools and the New Mutants, because is, is that really a thing? Is that a movie that happened? I'm not so sure. But for now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. Catch you at the next stop, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-O-K-E-D. <laughs> <laughs>